Hello and welcome! You are listening to Desperate Acts of Capitalism, a podcast about money, marketing, and how it all goes wrong. Join us on our magical journey through a wonderland of burning money. I'm Evan Swope. And I'm C.T. Kelly. And today, if my phone will load... There we go. Alright, alright. So, I've got... This was an interesting one. I... It, it was really interesting because... Like, there's so much information yeah. about this topic. There is so much information. But none of it is told in order, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And there's so much happening all at once that trying to sort of unravel this and figure out all this stuff that was happening at the same time was a lot harder than I expected. Right. So, uh, let's let's just jump in here. Sweet. <clears throat> Clearfield, Utah, is a blip of a Midwestern city, a polyp on the artery of the I-15, supported almost entirely by the nearby Hill Air Force Base. Founded in 1877 by Mormon missionaries and incorporated in 1922, it has been steadily growing over the years. Currently, it has three parks, several Mormon churches, a super Walmart, a dollar store, a pawn shop, two McDonald's, a Wendy's, a coffee shop, four local restaurants with names like Bido's Mexican Food or Dragon Hill Chinese, a gym with a trampoline, and a teppanyaki joint with $3 signs and a 4.6 star rating on Yelp. It sounds like the most American city I've ever heard of. Aside from YouTuber Sean McBride and a bassist for Panic at the Disco, Clearfield, Utah is not a place that produces things. It is a clean, humble place with a semi-arid climate and a population of roughly 30,000 average hard-working Americans. Okay. But it is also it is also to my LA metropolitan area sensibilities terribly and unrelentingly boring. In February of 1943, Nolan K. Bushnell was born to its stucco embrace. Oh boy. And he, like so many children growing up in small towns, had to get creative when it came to entertainment. However, Nolan was different, in that he was naturally curious, with an interest in machines and electronics. He nearly burned down his parents' garage with a homemade liquid fuel rocket tied to a roller skate. At the age of 15, Nolan's father died, and Nolan had to make ends meet. Initially, he took over his father's concrete contracting business, but quickly sold it to go to college at Utah State University. While attending classes, he worked at the Lagoon Amusement Park in nearby Farmington. Two seasons after starting, he was made manager of the games department. He was reportedly fascinated by the games, and took quite well to getting people interested enough to cough up money to play. Hmm. So while he was going to college, he basically ran the, the sort of midway games... You know, all the, like, the dunk tank stuff at this local, uh, at the Lagoon Amusement Park. Sounds which, like, like a lot of fun, but also a lot of work. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that I I, I looked up the uh, Lagoon Amusement Park, and it actually looks pretty dope. Like, nice. in terms of, it, it seems like, it's, like, on par with Knott's Berry Farm. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's got, it, it doesn't quite have, like, the theming. But it looks pretty cool, honestly. Nice. Like, it's definitely a fun place to hang out. That's like a great college job. Yeah, no, that's a perfect college job. And it'll come, like, this will all come back later. Cool. So, 
While in college, he founded The Campus Company, an advertising, an advertising group that produced blotters and sold advertising space for Utah State and its affiliated colleges. Later, during the summer months, he would work for Litton Guidance and Control Systems, the company that manufactures spacesuits. Hmm. Wow. So he was, like, so he had to take over his dad's concrete contracting business at age 15. Like, Jeez. this kid, this kid grew up being essentially forced to learn business. Yeah. And he took to it pretty well. Like, he... It's less like he's much less on the finance end, and he's much more on the sort of like talking to people and like sales type end. Right. There's like two really like successful types of businessmen. It's like the the salesy marketing dudes, and then there's the the finance uh, analytics yes. dudes. Business and finance. Yep. Two halves of the same coin that are often completely conflated. Yes. In 1968, Nolan was hired by Ampex, a small consumer electronics company, where he met a man named Ted Dabney. The two bonded over a shared love of pizza, the game Go, and interest in computer games. In 1969, Nolan took Bushnell to the Utah State University Computer Labs to show him the Digital Equipment Corporation's Programmable Data Processor 1, or DEC PDP 1 for short. A computer equivalent to one of... It's a computer equivalent to one of those, like, 1996 pocket organizers, but with less money. Okay. Uh, it cost the university the equivalent of $1.3 million. Jeez. This wasn't quite one of those, like, reel-to-reel tape deck computers that took up a whole room, but it was basically the next big generational leap after that. Okay. But still, like, incredibly primitive. Incredibly primitive. Like, uh, it it had a keyboard, which was a, a big step up. Right. <laughs> On it was Space War, one of the earliest ever computer games, and the first ever to be run. Uh, the first ever to be able to be run on multiple systems. Uh, it consisted. It it actually seems kind of fun, and and I'm sure that you could play a reproduction of it like in your browser right now. Yeah. Uh, let's see. It consisted of two ships, the Needle and the Wedge, that attempted to navigate the gravity well of a star placed at the center of the field as they fired torpedoes at each other. Because, like, the the PDP-1, all of this is... Like, all of Nolan's early life takes place in the old Silicon Valley. Hmm. Because before it was this big, like... Before it was this big, like, tech entrepreneurship thing, it was the center of uh, aerospace, right? Uh, okay. It was all weapons contractors. Mm. And so the DEC PDP-1 was... It was built for aerospace telemetry, which mm. is why one of the first video games in history uh, is built for simulating a gravity well. Wow. Like, you can fire the torpedoes, but they're affected by the gravity of the star, Right, so you can sort of bank your shots by like, like if you fire closer to the star at the center, the torpedoes will curve much sharper, and so you can uh, snipe people around corners like that. That does sound like a lot of fun, right? Yeah. Da, 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 da. Ah, yes. Nolan and Ted were inspired. Nolan described his idea for a fiberglass cabinet complete with control pad and a coin slot, similar to Midway games, and the pair were off to the races. Mm. 
Bushnell and Dabney worked with a company called Nutting Associates to manufacture their product. Dabney developed a method of using video circuitry components to mimic functions of a computer for a much cheaper cost and a much smaller space. Bushnell and Dabney used this to develop a variation of Space War called Computer Space, where the players shot at two orbiting UFOs. Nutting Associates helped to manufacture the fiberglass cabinet. So, early on, so this, this sort of dynamic duo of Bushnell and Dabney was one of the sort of earliest Silicon Valley power pairs. Like, this is very mm. similar to uh, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. Right. Like, Bushnell's the sales guy, but Dabney's the tech guy. Right. Right. Like, because the, two, Dab- the two really important, you know, like powerful forces to have for a startup. It's... It's this combination of, like, two guys that both understand tech and business. Yeah. Um, and are very good at it, mm. right? Yeah. Because Bushnell's... Bushnell was basically the first, uh, like, hoodie billionaire. He was the first Silicon Valley new money billionaire. Okay. Uh, he's, he laid the groundwork for all of this. For the Zuckerbergs to come. Yes, no, com- like, he is the, he is, Nolan Bushnell is what every person, like, selling stocks and bonds in Silicon Valley is trying to be. Right. But he was this, he, Nolan Bushnell was this crazy 1970s version of that, where he had, like, Jordash jeans and a pocket full of condoms and coke. <laughs> like, a way more, like, metal version of it. Yeah, right. da 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 while they were developing this, they took on the they took on duties under Nutting to repair pinball machines. Computer space did not fare well commercially when it uh, oh. was placed in Nutting's customary market, bars. Nutting reported that they had produced uh, 2,300 units but had only sold 750, feeling uh-huh. that the game was simply too complex for the average customer, uh, unfamiliar and unsure of the new technology. Right. So Bushnell started looking for new ideas. Mm. So that was sort of where, because like, remember back in the 1960s, if you went to, if you were going out to uh, an amusement park or something, you could drink, you know, it's not like Disneyland. This is, this is the sort of blue collar version of all that, where you go out with your friends and you sort of get hammered and ride some roller coasters. You throw some balls in hoops and they're trying to give you as much beer as possible. That sounds crazy to me now. It just sounds like a bad idea. It sounds like it sounds fun, but all that stuff is so much more expensive now, you know? Oh yeah. I mean like they would be gouging you left and right if they still did that. Exactly. And it's like they gouge you even if you're sober. Exactly. Like imagine if Disneyland sold alcohol. Like it'd be insane. Right. But and so this is like when they they pitched this idea for like one of the first arcade cabinets to Nutting Associates, yeah, they they were like, oh, obviously this will go into bars. That's where like that's that's the logical conclusion, right? right. But imagine being like some like some drunk ex Mormon in the middle of Utah somewhere, and there's this like crazy experimental aerospace computer with UFOs on it, like in the corner, and you're like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> Right. I want to play the game where you you roll the ball and try to hit down the pins. 
Right, exactly. You want to play the pinball game. You don't... It's like, what is this weird sci-fi Jetsons technology with the, the UFOs and the big knob? Yeah. So that didn't go well. So they started looking for other ideas. Right. Uh, they decided to start a separate venture initially called Sizgy Game Company, spelled S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. Just mm. rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Uh, each put in uh, $250 of their own funds to support it, which is the equivalent of about, like, $2,000. It's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. They subsequently made sure that Nutting used Sizgy Energy labels on every computer space game sold to reflect their work on the game. Mm-hmm. Bushnell began seeking other partners outside of Nutting and approached uh, pinball game manufacturer Bally Manufacturing, who indicated interest in future in funding future efforts in arcade games by Bushnell and Dabney, hmm. uh, but only if Nutting was not involved. What do they have against Nutting? They're competitors. Oh, uh, okay, I see. Like, they, they all make uh, arcade games. Right. Let's see. The two, qu- <laughs> the two quit Nutting and established offices for Sizgi in Sunnyvale. Yeah, I mean, uh, why wouldn't the- they? Right, yeah. At that point, not taking a salary yet, since they had no products. Yeah. Bally then offered to pay them $4,000 a month for six months to design a new video game. Wow. And to add a, uh, a new pinball machine. With wow. those funds, they hired Al Alcorn and their fir- uh, as their first design engineer. Initially wanting to start Siski off with a driving game, Bushnell had concerns that it might be too complicated for young Alcorn's first game. So, basically, like, Nutting looked at these guys and didn't really know what to do with them, and then, but Bally Manufacturing was looking at them and, like, salivating. Like, we will give you as much money as you want. Right, and they're probably the smarter ones. I mean, obviously, they're the smarter ones, because they see this opportunity. And, like, let's just throw money at it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the thing is, is that, like, so... What we're going to discover over the course of this episode is that Nolan Bushnell is not a good businessman. Mm. He's not a bad businessman, though. Yeah. He's just not a good businessman. He's not exactly, like, he's barely competent, right? Interesting. But he is very, very smart. Okay. And he's, so not only does he know computers, but he knows business and he knows the computer business. Okay. Right? Bushnell is the sales guy. He's not. He's not really the sort of Steve Jobs type inventor. Yeah. That, like, people make him out to be. What what uh, Nolan Bushnell is is a salesman. Yeah. Right. He's just one of these guys that, especially in the sort of burgeoning 1970s tech market, is able to look at the sort of lay of the land and predict what trends are going to be coming. Okay. And that's really just because, like, nobody knew about the tech industry. Like, it was just very small and required a lot of, like, insider knowledge. Yeah. Like, nobody knows how... Com- nobody knew how computers worked. Yeah, definitely. But Bushnell did. Then. Yeah. Let's see, let's see. But uh, By May of 1972, Bushnell had seen a demonstration of the Magnavox Odyssey, which included a tennis game. Uh, do you know what the Magnavox Odyssey is, Evan? No. So, okay, the Magnavox... So, Magnavox was a company that back in the 1970s mainly produced, um, uh, like, 
they mainly produced like DVD players, that sort of thing, or not DVD players. It was the 1970s, but they they produced like um, TV boxes, okay. stereos, that sort of thing. Right, like home entertainment systems kind of yeah. deal. Just that that whole range of products, and they built the Magnavox Odyssey was basically the first real home game console. Oh, okay, but they actually wanted to do it like. But the thing about the Magnavox is that it was incredibly expensive. It was yeah. basically the equivalent of like over a thousand dollars today. Right. Um, and Magnavox as a company tried. They were trying to sell games on like a subscription based service, like. As in, like, getting a cable package. You'd get, like, game packages. Okay. That's interesting, though. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so the Magnavox Odyssey included a tennis game, and according to Alcorn, Bushnell decided to have him produce an arcade version of the Odyssey's tennis game, which would go on to be named Pong. Oh, yes. The classic. The classic Pong. Yep. That's Nolan Bushnell. <sighs> wow. So, Bushnell had Alcorn use Dabney's video circuit concepts to help develop the game, believing it would be first a prototype, but Alcorn's success impressed both Bushnell and Dabney, leading them to believe that they had a major success on hand mm. and prepared to offer the game to Bally as part of the contract. In mm. anticipation, Bushnell and Dabney went to incorporate the firm, but found that Sisgi, an astronomical term, already existed in California. So Bushnell wrote down several words from Go, eventually choosing Atari, a term that, in the context of the game, means a state where a stone or group of stones is imminently in danger of being taken by one's opponent. It's a great uh, it's, name. It's similar to like being in check in chess. Uh-huh. Uh, Atari was incorporated into the state of California on June 27th of 1972. But what was going on inside Mr. Bushnell's mind during all of this? What follows is from a 2018 Medium interview uh, with Bushnell and company. <clears throat> Bushnell. The game was fuzzy, and it wasn't that fun. It had no screen, no scoring, no sound. And bare. Maybe it wasn't as fancy. It didn't keep score. But people have played table tennis for 250 years, and how do they keep score? They call out the scores. No big deal. I really resent that Nolan treats me like an engineer, and that didn't. I really resent that Nolan treats me like an engineer, uh, that didn't know what the hell he was doing. Like it was a piece of junk, and he's this great hero. Bullshit! All you have to do is look at the record: three hundred and fifty thousand Odysseys sold in the first year. I didn't go before the President of the United States to have the National Medal of Technology hung around my neck, because I'm just an engineer. I invented video games. I love how spiteful he is. That's great. That's, this is how everyone talks about Nolan Bushnell. Because here's the second thing about Nolan Bushnell. He's an asshole. Oh, he's not evil, but he's definitely a fucking asshole. And which is why I'm sure he's good for this podcast. Yes. Um, I was, I was so, worried that he was just going to be like a good businessman. <laughs> like just no. a, a regular dude who is a good businessman. No, he's an asshole. He's like <laughs> okay, good. He he's not like a bad. Per- he's not like a bad person per se. He's just like he's just an asshole. He's but the, he's that nineteen seventies flavor of asshole where it's like kind of endearing. Yeah, well, he he's uh, not like a like to a, a point. <laughs> right, he's not like a sick like horrible person. He's just like a jerk. Yeah, he's not. 
he's not on that like Ron Johnson level of being like an evil East India Company ship captain yeah. or anything <laughs> who disdains his cu- customers right who actively hates his customers <laughs> he's he's a lot closer to like oh god it's oh man who was that who was that guy it's like it, he's he has a personality very similar to Billy McFarland but if he was actually good at his job right like what are you saying? Very, what are you saying about Billy McFarland? Just the, his whole personality of being like a very sort of driven dude, bro. If that makes sense. Oh, I see. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Like, I, I, one, I, see, I see. what you're, I see what you're saying. <laughs> What's with the hesitation? <laughs> okay. In full disclosure, when you said Billy McFarland, I thought you were referring to the dude from Billy on the Street. I, oh, no. So I was like, "Wait, what's what? What's your problem with Billy Eichner? Billy Eichner? That's the, Billy Eichner. Like, yeah, dude. Like, what's you, you hate Billy Eichner? I was like, right. what's wrong sorry. With Billy? I thought he was fun. <laughs> He's a jerk, kind of <laughs> like Billy Eichner. Right. Sorry, sorry. That I added nothing to the podcast there. <laughs> no, it's fun. It's always interesting seeing like weird directions that your mind goes in. Yeah, I, it was just confusion. Anyway, continue. All right, all right. So Bushnell. Uh, it was it was Al's first or second day, and I had needed a training project. Computer space was a pretty complex project, and Bally's driving game was going to be the hard one. And I thought, okay, I'm going to pitch him this uh, going to pitch him this learning project, this ping pong game. Bear, my ping my ping pong game, <laughs> pong they called it. Alcorn, uh, Nolan described pong as uh, one moving spot, a score, a net, and a ball. It couldn't be any simpler. He told me that he had this deal with General Electric. Bushnell. I told him that I had a contract with General Electric because I find that people don't like training projects or dead-end projects. It was a little fabrication. <laughs> so he just That's lied about... <laughs> he, he just lied about having a contract with GE to get Bear to work harder on this. That's like an Elizabeth Holmes move. Yeah. There's always a connection. Like that's what I love this, about this podcast. It's like there's so many like trends that emerge. Well, it's it's interesting with Bushnell because it's like it's like if these guys were all sword masters, all of them would have studied Nolan Bushnell, you <laughs> yeah. know. Right. And and learned various part various tricks and <laughs> and styles. Right, right. They would be modeling themselves after the sword play of Nolan Bushnell. Yeah. So Alcorn it never occurred to me that this could be bullshit. Uh, yeah, why would it be? Right. It's like it was. It's day two, and he's already. He's like, why would you? Why would you lie about that? Yeah. Bushnell. Al basically had the thing going in half a week. It might have been a week and a half, and it was fun. I thought maybe Bally would like Pong instead of this driving game. I took it to Chicago and presented it to Bally. They were troubled by the fact that it was a two-player game, and that at the time you needed to have a one-player game. So they thought. That was the entrenched wisdom at the time. Hmm. Alcorn. So Nolan said, uh, put it out on location. We put it next to a computer space at Andy Cap's Tavern. Nolan and I popped it in one day after work and went and bought a beer and watched until somebody played it. I never thought anybody would play it. Think about it. There's no instructions. It just says Pong. <laughs> pong. <laughs> which It just says Pong, which meant nothing. There's just two knobs and a coin box. What's the motivation here? Hey, hey, hey guys. Pong. What? Hey, hey, hey guys. Uh, uh, Pong. 
Are you okay? Are you having uh, a stroke? Uh, pong. Uh, Guys, look. Uh, look. Pong. Look. Pong. Look. 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 <laughs> oh God, he's having a stroke. <laughs> Just like flapping his arms, spinning around. <laughs> That's what strokes look like. <laughs> <laughs> it's a severe stroke. Adva- <laughs> it's an advanced stroke. Uh, it's. <laughs> it's like that that onion video where it's like. It's like the the parody of the TED Talks, and the dude like makes an invention that fires every neuron on your brain at once. <laughs> right. and he's like, starts like vomiting and like, convulsing and spinning around. Uh, man, my favorite thing about those onion talks were like they always use that one cutaway shot of like the black guy in the audience nodding. <laughs> yeah. It's in like every single video. Yeah. It's like every time they need a reaction shot, it's like the same black guy nodding. It's just those little touches that the onion does. It's just like oh, genius. Alright. Bushnell and Dabney offered to license Pong to Bally, but the game had no idea what to do with the game and did not immediately take the license. Hmm. It's like it's literally like Bushnell and Dabney sh- fly into Chicago and they're like, hey guys, Pong. <laughs> they just have a big sign with Pong written on it. Hey guys, Pong. Pong. It's like, what do we do with this? What is this? This is nothing. <laughs> Pong. Pong. They eventually just like take it, just like because they're so like creeped out by them, just getting right, closer like... with a sign that says Pong. Bushnell and Dabney opted to create a test unit themselves and see how it was received at a local establishment. Hmm. By August of 1972, the first Pong was completed. It consisted of a black-and-white television from Walgreens, the special game hardware, and a coin mechanism from a laundromat on the side which featured a uh, a milk carton inside to catch coins. Hmm. It was placed in a Sunnyvale tavern by the name of Andy Caps to test its viability. The Andy Cap test was extremely successful, and the company created 12 more test units, 10 which were distributed across other local bars. They found that the machines were averaging around $400 a week each. Wow. In several cases, when a bar owner reported that the machines were malfunctioning, Alcorn found that it was due to the coin collector had been overflowing with quarters, shorting out the coin slot mechanism. Right. Wow. It was literally breaking because it was so successful. Right. There's. It's. It's hard to have something that breaks because it's too full of money. Yeah. <laughs> They reported these numbers to Bally, who still had not decided on taking the license, which, like, like you're a fucking idiot. Yeah, there's your proof of concept. Like, there's the test run. Like, it's a smashing success. Right, it's like, hey, Bally Manufacturing, so we've got this machine that's literally so successful that it breaks under the sheer weight <laughs> of the amount of money that is stuffed inside of it every day. And they're like, oh, yeah, I don't know, I don't guys. Know. It's like, you fucking idiots. <laughs> Bushnell and Dabney realized that they needed to get uh, that they needed to expand on the game, but formally needed to get out of their contract with Bally. Mm. So Bushnell told Bally that they could offer to make another game for them, but only if they rejected Pong. Bally mm. agreed, letting Atari off the hook for the pinball machine design as well. So they're they're now completely out of their contract uh, wow. with Bally, uh, but they have to make some other game for them that isn't Pong. Right. You know, one of the most successful video games in human history. Yeah, right. That I mean, that's like, like, like you said, Bushnell's like a, a genius, like seeing their stupidity and immediately getting out of 
like the contract. Like that's a, okay, that's a okay. very shrewd move. Bushnell has this crazy mutant ability for like stepping off the train at just the right moment. Uh, okay. It's not and I don't think he's doing it on purpose, which yeah. is the weird thing. Mm. I it's it's less that he was like lucky or like that he cuz he did he did have a good grasp on like when the winds were changing in the business world. Yeah. But there were there are so many instances in this story where he just like it's like he decides to leave the company and then like a month later something catastrophically terrible happens. Yeah. He yeah. always manages to step off at the very peak of the curb and I don't think right. it was on purpose every time. Hmm. Wow. After talks to release Pong through nutting and <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I made it through the first eight without giggling like an idiot. <laughs> Release Pong through nutting. It's a new uh, merch idea. <laughs> and it's just like those those terrible like virus ridden banner a- banner ads that are like <laughs> try to play this game without nutting, yeah. and it's just Pong. <laughs> <laughs> I would love for Pornhub to do like an April Fool's joke where they <laughs> replace all those ads with just like old classic video games <laughs> right it's just <laughs> oh, that's hilarious it's, well and the idea that like <laughs> the idea that the experience of playing Pong is <laughs> yeah. like an overwhelmingly erotic experience <laughs> right right <laughs> uh, after talks to release Pong through nutting and several other companies <laughs> God damn it. I'm sorry. We were doing so well. I know, I know. It's okay, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay to have fun every now and then. Oh, God. We're not supposed to have fun on this this podcast. No. We're trying to warn people of the end times. Not not have fun. God. Bushnell and Dapney decided to release Pong on their own, and Atari Incorporated was established as a coin-op design and production company. Around 1973, Dabney felt that he was being put to the side by Bushnell. Bushnell had left him out of several high-level meetings and assigned him to overseeing the manufacturing process, but not the design work. And Dabney discovered Bushnell had patented his video circuit concept without him as an inventor. Yeah, I think you might be right in that assessment that he's trying to push you out. Yeah, uh, several dick moves in a... (laughs) Yeah, that's like Mark Zuckerberg early days of Facebook-level dick moves. It's one of those. It's one of those things that's not illegal, but you're a you're a huge asshole. Yeah, to do that to your partner. And it, but the interesting thing is, is that it's one of those things that's a dick. It's not illegal. It's a huge dick move, and it's something you probably could be sued for. Yeah, right. That could end up being worse than the potential legal whatever's is yeah. like a incredibly expensive lawsuit. In March of 1973, Dabney formally left Atari, selling his portion of the company for uh, $250,000 in U.S. currency, hmm. which in 1973 is like $2 million. Right, so he, he's, he's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. While Dabney would continue to work for Bushnell on other ventures that we will talk about next episode, Ooh. he had a falling out with Bushnell and ultimately left the video game industry. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, God, I wonder why. 
Dabney's contributions toward Atari's founding were generally forgotten until 2009 when he gave an in-depth interview with Edge on his role. Hmm. In 1973, Bushnell secretly spawned a quote-unquote competitor called Key Games, headed by Bushnell's next-door neighbor, Joe Keenan, to circumvent pinball distributors' insistence on exclusive distribution deals. Both Atari and Key could market virtually the same game to different distributors, with each getting a quote-unquote exclusive deal. Though Key's relationship to Atari was later discovered in 1974, Joe Keenan did such a good job managing the subsidiary that he was promoted to president of Atari that same year. Oh, wow. So this is Which, a, he was just trying to, like, circumvent, like, monopoly laws? Or what was it's, the so goal? So, basically, all of these distributors wanted exclusivity deals with Bushnell. Oh, uh, like, I see. So it's like, like you can't make oh, games for anyone else. Well, no, it's like you can only sell this game with me, and you okay. can only sell them in my the area that I own. You can't sell it to anyone else. And Bushnell was like, "Ah, fuck that! I want to yeah. sell all of my games to all of my uh, to every distributor." Yeah, anyone who's willing to pay, he wants to sell to. So he started a sort of fake shell corporation that sold like knockoffs of his games. Wow, that's Which, crazy. Not, not illegal, but something you could be sued for. Yeah, that's a, a very Nolan Bushnell move. I'm starting to yes. see a, a pattern. Yes, oh yes. In 1974, despite Atari's success domestically, it was struggling to sell games overseas. In a 2018 interview, Alcorn described the situation as a, quote, an utter disaster beyond recognition. <laughs> In the same interview, Bushnell said, quote, We didn't realize that Japan was a closed market, so we were in violation of all kinds of rules and regulations of, uh, oh, no. of Japanese rules, and they were starting to give us a real bad time, Alcorn. And Ron Gordon came in as a consultant and fixed that all up, fixed all that for us for a huge commission. Quote, oh, Bushnell. I was 28 years old and really trying to operate on a global stage with really no clue what it was all about. Yeah. Alcorn. Nolan had, Nolan had read this book about a company's growth, and he learned that from this book that the team that gets you a million dollars in sales can't get you any further. You've got to get you've got to get pros to get any further. Hmm. Dabney. He hired this president of the company that was a real Yahoo, and I mean a real Yahoo, okay? He also hired a vice president of engineering that could not, would not make a decision. And then he hired a salesman as vice president of marketing who didn't even know how to spell marketing. What the hell's going on? <laughs> Alcorn. They basically ruined the company, and then engineering made a key mistake. Bushnell. A part of our driving game had failed. A, or a part of our driving game had failed. And remember, we were operating on positive cash flow. Hmm. Alcorn. The games we did ship, we had to take back. It was so bad. <laughs> So, Bushnell, so all of a sudden, we had a floor full of machines that couldn't be sold, which stopped our cash flow. Alcorn, Nolan was in tears. You could see Nolan was thinking, this is over. Bushnell, we got sued for non-payment of our bills. The sheriff had come to attach our assets, our bank accounts, so we had to switch bank accounts every week. Again, not illegal, something you could be sued for. Yes. Alcorn. Ron Gordon saw that his goose laying the golden eggs was dying. Bushnell. We were just coughing blood. Dabney. Atari was going down. Alcorn. 
and Ron came back and fired all those guys, talked to the banks to get our bank line going, and revived the company, and boom, he got us going again. Hmm. Wow. So basically what, hap- basically what happened is they sort of peaked, they sort of saturated the uh, the domestic market, and they were like, all right, let's start selling in Japan, but didn't check on any of the like rules or regulations. Right. And so couldn't, all of their consoles got returned, and so they weren't able to sell anything, and defaulted on all of their bills. Oh, man. And so sort of, as an emergency measure, Bushnell hired, like, like, he hired this sort of financial manager who basically, like, took the reins from him in a way that was like, all right, buddy, yeah. let me do this. Like, like, like good, good you, try, but yeah. <laughs> daddy's like, going right, to drive buddy. now. Let a professional take over. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Good boy. In 1974, Atari entered the consumer electronics market after engineers Harold Lee and Bob Brown approached Alcorn with an idea to develop a home version of Pong. With a marketing and sales distribution agreement with Sears, Pong sales soared until the unit was released in 1975. And this is when Pong really hit it big. Yeah. Right? Was this this home version of Pong. Hmm. Because what... um, because what uh, Atari has just done here is they have entered the home consumer electronics market. Wow. And this will be a move that changes the face of global capitalism. Yeah. Damn. Oh, yeah. This this entire story, to keep this at the back of your mind, all of this fundamentally changed global capitalism. Right. This is an enormous, like, history-changing watershed series of events. Starting with Pong. Starting with Pong. In 1975, Howard Canton, Atari employee Ron Wayne, along with two independent contractors who had previously helped with development of the Atari game Breakout, created and marketed their own home computer. They offered the design to Bushnell, but Atari had no desire to build computers at the time, instead focusing on the arcade and home console markets. In 1976, one of the non-employees went to Nolan to get him to see if he couldn't get him to put some money in for exchange for a minor equity stake in their startup. Nolan remarked, "If they asked me if I would put fifty thousand dollars in, and he would give me a third of the company, I was smart, so I said no." The two non-employees were named Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Oh, wow. it's kind of it's kind of fun to think about that when I'm not crying," <laughs> continued Bushnell. So it seems like he cries a lot. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Just interesting to, to I've heard him being in tears twice now. Well, he did a lot of cocaine. Okay. Like, so, remember, this is the 1970s, so there's a lot of like everyone in this story is on a lot of cocaine, so they're very emotional. Right. It's <laughs> not a bad thing. Just uh, something to note. Not a bad thing, but like there is very possibly cocaine behind that. Yeah. Right. So basically, in 1976, Steve Jobs was like, "Here, if you give me fifty thousand dollars, I'll give you a third of Apple." Right. And Bushnell is still beating, like, beating himself up over that move. Yeah. Damn. It's in like... 1970, what? Oh, sorry. What are you saying? Never mind. It's fine. It's not even worth it. It's gonna make a <laughs> Jimmy Neutron reference. Who cares? Wait. Okay. No. Now you have to make it. <laughs> oh. Okay. It just reminded me of there's an episode of Jimmy Neutron where. His dad talks about he almost had a chance to invest in McSpanky's burgers, <laughs> but he, he chose 
he chose to use his money to pay for his his wife's uh, engagement ring, and so ah, right. Jimmy invents a time machine and tells his dad to invest in McSpanky's Burgers, and then he goes back forward in time, and his family is incredibly rich, and he real but like his parents are assholes, so he realizes like money just doesn't make you happy, etc. Right. And he learns a, a valuable lesson, but you know, right. forget it. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Just imagine somebody coming up to you and being like, "Could you give me fifty thousand dollars for a share for a one third share of McSpanky's Burgers?" <laughs> and then later in life, that turns like McSpanky's turns out to be like the McDonald's of your dimension. Yeah, you'd be beating yourself up all the time. Right? Why didn't I invest that money into McSpanky's? Actually, I take it back. I don't think Hugh. Neutron was beating himself up. I think he was content, and that was what what Jimmy didn't understand. Right, yes. Let's see, let's see. Anyway. In 1975, Bushnell started an effort to produce a flexible video game console that was capable of playing all four of Atari's then-current games. Development took place at an offshoot engineering lab, which initially had serious difficulties trying to produce such a machine. However, in early 1976, the now famous MOS Technology 6502 was released, and for the first time, the team had a CPU with both the high performance and low cost needed to meet their needs. Hmm. The result was the Atari 2600, released in October of 1977 as the, quote, Video Computer System. It is Hmm. one of the most successful video game consoles in human history. Wow. Bushnell knew he had another potential hit on his hands, but bringing the machine to market would be extremely expensive. And so, before he released it, in 1976, Bushnell sold Atari to Warner Communications for $28 million, using part of the money to buy the Folgers Mansion. Uh, This largely turned ownership of Atari over to a man named Ray Kassar. That's a cool name. And uh, buckle up, everybody. This is where it gets fun. (laughs) Okay. In 1977, the Atari 2600 was released. While part of Warner, Atari achieved its greatest success, selling millions of 2600s and computers. At its peak, Atari accounted for a third of Warner's annual income and was the fastest-growing company in the history of the United States at the time. Wow. In November of 1978, when Atari co-founder Nolan Bushnell left the company after a dispute with Warner over the future of Atari Incorporated, Kassar became CEO. So, he didn't really leave the company, he was kind of forced out. Yeah. Under his leadership, sweeping changes were made at Atari, and the laid-back atmosphere that had existed under Bushnell's leadership had all but disappeared. Oh, man. Because what you've got to... Because Bushnell ran this company... Like, he ran this company like the Playboy Mansion. There were basically no rules, and as long as you, like, it was like Bushnell would give you a job, and then as long as you finished it by the time he asked you to finish it, he didn't care what you were doing. Right. Like, his office had, like, a hot tub in it. <laughs> right. And he would invite girls over all the time. Like, the it was. The peak of 70s opulence. It totally was. It was like. But you have to remember that Nolan Bushnell was, like, a nerdy engineering student from Utah State. Right. So it's like... And now he has a ton of power, like, in money. But he's he's really just here to 
use technology to make money, right? He's yeah. not he's not really some crazy hedonist. Right. Like the, the hedonism isn't his goal. He actually he actually liked video games and just wanted to make video games. Right. But what's a little hedonism on the side? Right. So take that corporate culture and then combine it with Ray Kassar. Hmm. Now, let's let's hear a little bit more about him. All right. Under his leadership, sweeping changes were made at Atari, and the, le- the laid-back atmosphere that had existed under Bushnell's leadership had all but disappeared. Kassar's 25 years at Burlington Industries had given him a taste for order, organization, and efficiency, and his efforts to revamp Atari along similar lines provoked substantial animosity. Wow. Kassar shifted focus away from game development and more towards marketing and sales. Atari Incorporated began to promote games all year, instead of just at the Christmas season. R&D suffered deep cuts, and the discipline and security at Atari Incorporated became strict. Hmm. Kassar became unaffectionately known to many at Atari as the, quote, Sock King, or the, quote, Towel Czar, due to his previous years at the textile industry. Towel Czar. The towels are. After he once referred to Atari's programmers as, quote, high-strung prima donnas in an interview with the San Jose Mercury News in 1979. So, take, take Atari's, like, Playboy Mansion-type corporate culture, and then combine it with this, like, old-money robber baron textile magnet. Yeah, right. And and the thing is, is that Ray Kassar, like, it's nineteen seventy five. Nobody knows what software designers do. Like, yeah. nobody knows. He can't tell if software designers are being productive or not. He doesn't understand how this works, and so he, and he's deeply disdainful of them. Right. Yeah. And oh, so he man. starts treating he starts treating them all like shit. Right. Like, he started, like, lowering their pay and, like, forcing them to work harder and with longer hours, which every single one of these guys, like, remember, this is the team that made the Atari 2600 and Pong, so they looked at this asshole like, you can't tell if we're doing a good job or not. Yeah. So we're just going to sit here on our stock options and do whatever we want. Right. Yeah, might as well. And so basically what happened was as soon as leadership got turned over to Ray Kassar, everything fell apart almost immediately. Right, of course. He didn't understand the company he was running. Well, it's... Yeah, no, it's... By 1982, Atari had uh, $1.3 billion in annual sales and was the fastest growing company in the history of American business. Wow. Although the 2600 had garnered the lion's share of the home video game market... It experienced the first stiff competition in 1980 from Mattel's Intellivision, which featured ads touting its superior graphics capabilities relative to the 2600. Still, the 2600 remained the industry standard bearer because of its market superiority and because of Atari featuring by far the greatest variety of game titles at the time. Mm. Although, the Intellivision did have better graphics. Uh, the, The 2600 had rectangular pixels, Hmm. The uh, the Intellivision did not, I believe. Hmm. 
So what is tests. what does that mean though, like for performance? Well, so okay, they they pretty much ran on equivalent chips. Like they were they were basically as fast as each other, but it, the Intellivision had like it could do more colors and mm. it could do like it had just more like its video card was better so it could have more pixels on the screen at once meaning like okay just the images on the screen were better right okay got it during the Casar years Atari incorporated sales grew from 75 million in 1977 to just over 2.2 billion just 3 wow. years later wow through Atari uh, though Atari enjoyed some of its greatest success during this period, the stifling atmosphere and lack of royalties or recognition to individual designers angered employees, many of whom quit. During yeah. this period, nearly all members of the original Atari Incorporated staff, including Al Alcorn, quit or were simply fired. Oh, man. Which, like, great move there, Mr. Kassar. Yeah, right. Never, never a good sign for a company. Atari Incorporated's upper management also suffered severe turnover rates. So, like, that's... There you go. We've got two red flags right in a... Right in sequence there. Mark that on your bingo card. Ding. Ding. Many blamed Ray Kassar's autocratic management style, but Kassar was not held accountable. Mm. One of the most notable turnovers was when four programmers were unsatisfied with their paychecks, and they felt they were making a very paltry salary for somebody who designed the games that made the company millions of dollars. Yeah. They wanted a small commission, but when they asked Kassar about that, David Crane recalls that Kassar responded, quote, You are no more important to that game than the guy on the assembly line that puts it together. Crane and three others resigned from Atari and formed their own company, Activision, which became the... <laughs> the first ever third-party game developer. Which is still an enormous industry giant to this day. Yeah, I mean, just like... That's a, that's a good success story. Just like quitting out of spite and making something that that has become a long, long-lasting long industry stable. Well, just the, the idea... The fact that Ray Kassar said, like, you are no more important to this process than the guys on the assembly line. It's like... You wouldn't say that to the guy that designed the car, you know? Oh, yeah. It's just, like, such a... It feels like such a wrong way to look at, like, a company. It's just, like, anyone... Like, everyone... Like, no one is more important than the other, but it's, like, there's jobs that are more skilled than others, like... It's, like... Well, it's, like, you're all... You are all necessary, but... It's, like, every single person is necessary. You need designers, and you need assembly line guys. Yeah. But... You are not paying the designers enough. Yeah, exactly. The the ones who are literally, you know, making these games. Right. The, it's like... And the thing is, is that you should pay them enough that they don't want to leave your company. You right. Know? And clearly, clearly you don't. Well, and the thing is, is that you should under... You should very clearly understand, as a CEO, what every person does <laughs> at your company and what they are worth. Exactly, exactly. You should understand their role in the process and what they should be paid for it. Yeah, this makes no sense. Just, again, remember, it is 1980. People don't know how computers work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what do you do? You twiddle your thumbs all day? Get your thumb up your ass? Like, people had no idea how any of this worked. Yeah. Ugh. 
Well, it's just frustrating that, like, I, I get that the general public doesn't get how it works, but, like, the CEO of the company should get right. what his designers do all day. Like, right. at least have a vague understanding of it. There you go. There's another, like, golden rule for you. Yeah. The CEO of your company should know what their employees do. Exactly. In 1981, the highly popular and successful game Yar's Revenge was released for the Atari 2600. Howard Scott Warshaw, the game designer, got the names Yar and Razak by jokingly spelling Ray Kassar backwards. That's great. Warshaw claimed that the game was, quote, Ray's Revenge on Activision. However, Atari ran into problems in the early 1980s. It's home mainly its home computer, video game console, and arcade divisions operated independently of one each of one another and rarely cooperated. Having grown to exceed the arcade division's sales, the game division viewed computers as a threat. But by nineteen eighty three, the computer division was losing a price war with Commodore International. So they pulled the same shit that Sears did. They had the different divisions of their companies like never talk to each other yeah. and compete with each other. Right, just like cannibalizing your own company. Well, and what that basically what this meant is that the the people that ran these different divisions essentially became their own sort of miniature CEOs in and of themselves that started like that even further closed off the different divisions from each other. Yeah, right. They stopped, and so they stopped. They stopped sharing resources and became responsible for their own like hiring, firing, and resource practices, which is quite possibly the worst way to run a company. Right, like warring cartel chiefs. Like, yeah, just literally, <laughs> it doesn't work. Uh, Everyone has to be on the same page. Well, and it's like the whole. Re- the main advantage to having a giant-ass corporation is the fact that you can move your fucking assets around to where they need to be moved. Yeah, exactly. In 1982, the Atari 5200 game uh, game console was released as a next-generation follow-up to the 2600. It was based on uh, the Atari 800 computer, but intentionally incompatible with Atari 800 software, and its sales never met the company's expectations. Huh, I wonder why. Yeah, right. Because basically what they did was they're like, all right, here's the Atari 5200. It has very similar... It has basically the same guts as our, like, Atari 800 series home computer, but uh, it's not backwards compatible, so all of those games that you spent, like, $75 on, because this is 1975, you got to rebuy them if you want to play them on the 5200. Right. So uh, no one did that. Yeah, exactly. That's incredibly frustrating. It's people hate that now. Oh, I mean, that's it seems like standard practice that at least the previous generation can be played on the on the on the uh, following system. Exactly. Popular games from third party developers such as Activision, Imagic, Parker and Parker Brothers also hurt Atari, reducing its share of the cartridge game market from 75 percent in 1981 to less than 40 percent in 1982. That's a huge drop. Right. Also in 1982, Atari released an incredibly disappointing port of Pac-Man, which featured pathetically subpar graphics and a grating, incomprehensible remix of its iconic soundtrack. (laughs) Now, I asked my dad about this because he actually had a 2600 back in 1980, and he said that, like, like, so the Atari 2600's sound chip was, like, terrible, and that... (laughs) 
this this cover of the Pac-Man theme was like nails on a chalkboard. It was like act it was like actively painful to listen to. Right. It's hilarious. It sounds like something I would design. Dude, I I love the whole concept of like I there's something so funny to me about like an otherwise normal product that has a single element that is that makes it like incredibly painful to experience. Yeah, exactly. It's like imagine if like like the new Tesla comes out and it's like it's a great car, everyone's raving about it, but like the AC only blasts like incredibly hot air. Like <laughs> it's like you cannot be in the car for longer than 30 minutes or else it's physically painful. Right, or it's like imagine the new Tesla comes out, but like the way that the seats are built gives them gives it like a weird lump that's always pressing yeah. into your ass in a right. really uncomfortable way. And it's like, so it's like why did you the do car this? Is amazing, but it's like painful to sit in. Yeah, it's like why did you do this? Or I, I, it's specifically something like it would have to be something that like you can you can totally experience the product in a completely normal way but you just have to put up with this one weird yeah. thing yeah exactly and you'll just never understand why it w- why that was added right like it's not going to cause you any physical harm or anything but it's just this one really really like user hostile yeah. piece of design right it's like why like there's something so fucking funny to me about like finding a tutorial video on YouTube that, like, it explains everything perfectly, but, like, the guy that recorded the sound has a terrible mic, and so it's just, like, ear-splittingly loud yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's, like, it's valuable information that you want to know, so you just have to get through it. I love it because it's, like, a challenge. Yeah. It's, like, how how willing are you to, it's like, to get this information? I'll tell you how to beat this level of the game, but you're going to have to, like, experience this this horrible grating treble of my voice. Oh, my God. It's like having to, it's like having to sacrifice, like, sacrifice a fattened hog or something <laughs> so that you can there's make a, the... There's always a price. Right. <laughs> I love shit like that. It's so fucking funny to me. Oh, that's great. Oh, my God. However, uh, there was something else in the works in 1982, and if you know anything about Atari and 1982, you know what I'm about to talk about. I think I have an inkling. So at the time, Steve Ross, chief executive officer and CEO of Atari's parent company, uh, Warner Communications, started negotiations with Steven Spielberg and Universal Pictures to acquire the license to produce a video game based on a recent film. In late June, Warner announced its exclusive worldwide rights to market coin-operated and console games based on said film. Although the exact details of the transaction were not disclosed in the announcement, it was later reported that Atari had paid uh, $25 million, uh, or $66 million when adjusted for inflation, for the rights. Right. bafflingly high figure for video game licensing at the time. (laughs) When asked by Ross what he thought about making a game based on the property, Atari CEO Ray Kassar replied, quote, I think it's a dumb idea. We've never really made an action game out of a movie. An arcade game based on the property has also been planned, but this was deemed to be impossible given the short deadline. (laughs) Why Why did they go through with it if Ray thought it was a dumb idea? I well because it wasn't him making the decision. It was his boss at Warner. Right. Okay. 
Right. It, like because Ray Kassar is just the CEO of Atari, but his it was his boss, the CEO of Warner Communications, that made this choice. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, in 1983, uh or 1983 marked the release of E.T. the Extraterrestrial for the Atari 2600. Frequently, frequently cited as the worst video game of all time, <laughs> and one of the biggest commercial failures in video game and consumer electronics history. It is broadly considered a major contributing factor to the video game industry crash of 1983, and has been frequently referenced and mocked in popular culture as a cautionary tale about the dangers of rushed game development and studio interference. Now, they say that E.T., the video game, is the worst video game of all time, but people who say that clearly haven't played Happy Feet the game. (laughs) Have you, Evan... Have you played E.T. the video game no, for the Atari 2600? No, I haven't. Okay, I have played Happy Feet. Shut the it. fuck up, Evan. You have no idea what you're talking about. There is no possible way that any game can ever measure up to E.T. the Extraterrestrial. All it right, is... well, you, you got to play Happy Feet the game. That's a pretty shitty game. I mean, I've played my... Okay, I've played my fair share of shovelware games, right? Nothing compares to E.T. Like, it is... It is so unrelentingly bad. We will talk about it. Okay. In what was initially deemed an urban legend, reports from 1983 stated that as a result of overproduction and returns, millions of unsold cartridges were secretly buried in the desert, specifically in an Alamogordo, New Mexico landfill, and then covered with layers of concrete. And in April of 2014, diggers hired to investigate the claim confirmed that the Alamogordo landfill contained many E.T. cartridges, among other games. James Heller, the former Atari manager who was in charge of the burial, was also at the excavation and admitted to the Associated Press that 728,000 cartridges of various games had been buried. Houses built on on that land were later discovered to have been haunted by the specter of an eight bit brown alien. Oh no! This isn't even this isn't even eight bit, my friend. This is this is the Atari twenty six hundred. What bit are we at at this point? Oh, this is this is this is um this is raw flash RAM memory. This isn't even like we aren't even at bits yet. That that's the next generation. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, okay. Um, if you haven't played E.T. the Extraterrestrial, um, so most games at the time took about 18 months to make. Uh, that was basically that was normal for the industry at the time. Uh, Atari had a really good team, and they could get games out in a year. So they made this deal with Universal um, in June and told them to have the game ready for Christmas. So that's five months. Oh, man. Um, now, the team... And remember, this is the team that made Pong and the Atari 2600. Yeah. This, these people could get any job they wanted in the industry. Yeah. They could do whatever they wanted. Right. And people, could, people would pay them whatever they wanted. Yeah. So instead of doing that, they said, fuck it, let's try, and sat down to see if they could actually make an E.T. video game in five months. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a challenge to themselves. Yeah, that's base. That's 
basically how they treated it. And the result is... So the game has five rooms, uh, and it can only manage uh, four colors on the screen at one time. So mm-hmm. you're, there are five rooms, and they are all filled with holes. And your job as E.T. is to walk painfully slowly uh, into these holes... Uh, these holes these these just black holes and then if you touch any of these holes it teleports you into a, like a side scroll view uh, where the hole has like a 1 in 8 chance of containing a small grey dot which according to the game's manual is one of the 6 pieces of the phone that you need to complete the game right and the the way that you the way that you so you collect these, and then you have to press a button to get E.T. to extend his neck so that he can hover out of the hole. Of course. Now, the thing is, is that every time you press the button, there's only like a 1 in 8 chance that you're actually that it's actually going to trigger the movement, like the movement option. Right. And so getting out of these holes is a Sisyphusian task. You can hold down the button, and E.T. will float up and then just stop floating and float up and then stop floating um i mean it's like say say what you want about the game design it's very accurate to the plot of the movie that's exactly (laughs) you know exactly capture that incredibly you know timeless story so well the classic scene where et goes into his next hole hole. (laughs) and has one in eight chance of finding a gray gray dot and then another one in eight chance of extending his neck outside of the hole it just like had me in tears every time as a kid (laughs) now in addition to this if you actually do manage to escape the hole it (laughs) evan are you okay sorry it's just the whole idea of just the whole the game revolves around holes it's just so strange. <laughs> which, which are not featured in E.T., yeah. I don't think. No, there's no there holes. There are no holes. So, if you do manage to reach the top of the screen to make it out of the hole, quote-unquote, uh, there's a large chance that it will simply spawn you back into the world, and your collision box will be overlapping the hole, and it'll just teleport you back into the hole. <laughs> so you finally... <laughs> like Bruce Wayne escaping from that underground prison, drag yourself out of this hole, and then you're just sent that's like back in hole. Well, and it so the the noise that it makes when you extend your neck is, <laughs> and then the noise for getting out of the hole is, and then the noise for getting into the hole is, <laughs> and so what this game sounds like is. Oh fuck! I'm back in the hole. Yes. yes. In addition to this, every so throughout the entire game, you are pursued by a a, a police officer that moves slightly faster than you, um, and if he touches you, uh, he takes you to jail and uh, erases all of your progress uh, while keeping the timer the same. So even if you do manage to, like, do this Sisyphusian task of collecting enough of these phone pieces, like, 
it takes an enormous amount of time to get out of these holes, and so almost every time you actually do get out of a hole, the policeman is waiting there for you to just take you to jail and take your phone piece. That heartbreaking scene in the movie where E.T. finally extends his neck out of the hole after the 47th try, and there's just a policeman waiting there saying, Not today, E.T. You're going to jail, boy. And then he takes him to jail and then lets E.T. out of jail. (laughs) You know, E.T., I cried every time. <laughs> oh my god. In July of 1983, Kassar was forced to resign from Atari Incorporated over mounting allegations of illegal insider trading. In December of, of 1982, Kassar had sold 5,000 shares of his stock in Warner Communications only 23 minutes before a much lower than expected fourth quarter earnings report would cause Warner's stock to drop nearly 40% in value in the following days. Mm. So. Hmm. Stock drop of over 40%. You can mark that on your bingo cards. (laughs) The Securities and Exchange Commission accused Kassar and Atari Incorporated Vice President Dennis Groth of of trading stock with illegal insider knowledge. He settled with the Securities Exchange Commission for $81,000, neither admitting to or denying the charges. Could have just been a strong coincidence that the stock dropped 40% the exact next day. I don't know. Oh gosh, I'm just so embarrassed about this. I would hate to have my good name sullied by accusations of insider trading. So here's $81,000 for you to drop this. (laughs) Right. These problems were followed by the video game crash of 1983, Hmm. which caused losses that totaled more than $500 million. Wow. Warner's stock price slid from $60 to $20, and the company began searching for a buyer for Atari. When yeah. Texas Instruments, uh, when Texas Instruments uh, exited the home computer market in November of 1983 because of a price war with Commodore, many believed that Atari would be next. Its Atari Soft games for rival computers sold well, and a rumor stated that Atari planned to discontinue hardware and only sell software. Hmm. Atari was still the number one console maker in every market except Japan. Nintendo, a Japanese game company, planned to release its first programmable video game console, the Famicom, later known to the rest of the world as the NES, in 1983, Mm -hmm. looking to sell the console in international markets. Nintendo offered a licensing deal whereby Atari would build and sell the system, paying Nintendo a royalty, uh, and then the deal was in the works throughout 1983, and the two companies tentatively decided to sign the agreement in June of 1983. Hmm. However, uh, Colico demonstrated its new Atom computer with Nintendo's Donkey Kong. Kassar was furious, as Atari owners as Atari owned the rights to publish Donkey Kong for its computers, which he accused Nintendo of violating. Hmm. Nintendo, in turn, criticized Colico, who which only owned the console rights to the game. Colico had legal grounds to purchase a claim through uh, though, since Atari had only purchased floppy disks floppy disk rights to the game. Uh, while the Atom version was cartridge-based. Ray Kassar was soon forced to leave Atari, and executives involved in the Famicom deal were forced to start over again as the deal failed. So all of that meant nothing. Yeah, (laughs) just a waste. Just an enormous, multi-million dollar waste of time. Yeah. Ah, My headphones got caught. Uh, So... As Ray Kassar left, James J. Morgan was appointed as Kassar's replacement on Labor Day of 1983, stating, quote, 
One company can't have seven presidents, he stated, uh, a goal of more closely integrating the company's divisions to end, quote, the fiefdoms and politics, all of the things and all of the things that cause these problems. Morgan had less than a year to try and fix the company's problems before he, too, was gone. James Morgan, a chief executive for Atari, who was brought on Labor Day, quoted as he was also quoted as saying, "It might there's a method to our madness. It might not look like it from the outside. It might look like we're going backwards faster than we're going forwards, but we're not. We're just trying to take an honest look at what this company is, can be, and should be. It might look like we're." completely failing at everything and sliding backwards on this slippery slope that's just inflated by uh, our stock price and it's only a matter of time until we declare bankruptcy and get chopped up by other smaller companies but it doesn't look like that we're just being honest with ourselves it's just a matter of how you look at it according to Morgan survival's not an issue anymore he said that the company had quote a good Christmas and was on the road to recovery Morgan may have been doing his best at the top, but for the rest of Atari, the battle was of a different sort. Middle managers are caught between the sweeping changes made by Morgan and the continuing power politics that plague the company. Hmm. If Atari is getting its act together, it's doing it erratically, and some parts of the company are still in nearly as much trouble as they were a year ago. The company has also shown few new consumer products since the June 1983 CES, or Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, basically, a, a a big convention where consumer electronics companies like show off what they're selling that year. Yeah, it's the one that Will I Am speaks at every year. Oh yeah, Atari's comeback will depend on how quickly the company can compete with its rivals by releasing new computers with innovative tech and lower prices that attracted people to Atari in the first place. And if Morgan has an answer to that, he isn't saying. Even more ominously, Atari's parent company, Warner Communications, is still in the middle of a tug-of-war for control of the company's management. The challenger, Australian publishing magnate Rupert Murdoch, has steadily increased ownership through his company, the News Corporation. Warner has attempted to foil this by partnering partnering with the BHC Broadcasting Company, who owns TV broadcasting, in places where Murdoch owns newspapers, meaning Murdoch can't take control of Warner without violating FCC guidelines. Hmm. So they're they're doing that so Murdoch doesn't take them over, and it is hemorrhaging them money. Yeah. Because they own a TV station now. Right. All of this rests on the shoulders of James Morgan, a slim, energetic man who is who seems to be thriving in his new role as CEO. Morgan has fought tooth and nail against the office politics that permeated Atari until its rivals. In some cases, he's won. The company managers now meet on a weekly... <laughs> the company managers now meet on a weekly basis. Wow. Meaning they weren't doing that before. <laughs> wow, good job, guys. Developing the communication needed to coordinate future activities, Morgan even insisted that the managers spend at least an hour a day in close proximity and gave each man a small office down the hall from his, saying, quote, It wasn't to be with me. A lot of people misinterpreted that. The real reason, he said, was that before he came, the managers never saw each other. Quote, I really felt at the first meeting I was introducing these men to each other. Right. Like... That's how bad shit was under Ray Kassar. Right. It's like, congratulations, you're now doing the bare minimum. Right. It's like they were literally weren't talking to each other. Yeah. 
That's horrible. Like, that's like, again, like cartel chiefs. Quote, we've taken giant steps in eliminating politics from the organization. There's still some left, but we've terminated some people who were focal points in the grapevine. But Morgan may underestimate how much of a problem internal politics still are. Atari employees, both existing and former, who were approached for the story, refused even to be quoted, even anonymously. The general theme running through their guarded words was that all was not well and that Atari would seek out those who were willing to describe the continuing internal problems. Right. So there's like a fucking secret police at Atari. Yeah, right. That sounds terrible. One employee who would talk about... Uh, one employee who would talk but would not give his name said that Morgan inherited a quote spider's web of contracts and obligations that until recently were difficult to unravel there is no cohesion according to the same source quote the Atari culture was there once but was never codified there have been tremendous power politics that nobody has ever been able to wrestle with Morgan was laying the law down but some of the hierarchies may be hard to put aside Old patterns die hard. Hmm. Of the 14 officers of the company, a number are holdovers from the days of Ray Kassar, and many are still playing by the old rules. For example, a source said that Donald Kinsborough, Atari's VP of Sales, is one of the powerful execs from the old days who, quote, knows where the skeletons lie and knows the, consumers, the consumer retailing distribution business better than even Morgan does. Some say that Morgan will eventually have to move Kinsborough and others out in order to solidify his own power. Hmm. While Morgan has made the necessary cuts, the middle management reorganization has been gutted by the changes. Quote, if you walked through the buildings, you'd see pockets of total neglect in the physical surroundings. This carries over to the morale of the people, people that would be moved from department to department. All that gets you is an unfocused middle management where they don't have the goals or the corporate culture. And all of that, and all that gets you is mediocrity. Mm-hmm. So it's the same story. They basically, they cut costs and gutted the middle management. So now nobody cares. Yeah. And so they stop, they stop caring about their employees. Right. Right. It's like, what, where, where do you see this going? Like, what was your, you know, how do you think this is going to work out? Exactly. One dealer told InfoWorld in early 1984 that, quote, it, it totally ruined my business. Atari has ruined all the independents, a non-Atari executive stated, quote, there were so many screaming, shouting, threatening dialogues. It's unbelievable that any company in America could conduct itself the way that Atari conducted itself. <laughs> Atari used threats, intimidation, and bullying. It's incredible that anything could be accomplished. Many people left Atari. There was incredible belittling and humiliation of people. We will never do business with them again. Rave reviews. Additionally, stated that uh, Atari has never made a dime in microcomputers, John J. Anderson wrote in 1984. (laughs) Many of the people I spoke to at Atari between 1980 and 1983 had little to no idea what the products they were selling were even about, or who, if anyone, would actually care. In one case, we were fed myths and disinformation on a frighteningly regular basis from a highly placed someone supposedly in charge of all the publicity concerning the computer systems. And chilling as the individual happenstance was, it seemed to have been endemic at Atari at the time. Right. It's not an isolated incident. It's like these 
these different divisions of the company are actively sabotaging each other. It's like, why? You're all on the same team, guys. It's like, if you worked together, you would all make more money. Yeah, because exactly. you would have a company that functioned. It's like, no. The guys in computers are mean. Right. You know, our division has to be doing better so we can get the bonuses. Right. It's like... It's like the CEO did some like program where he offered some prize that like the winning division is going to get like a $100 Olive Garden gift card. And so right. they've just been like infighting with each other and like sabotaging each other so they can get that Olive Garden gift card, failing to realize that like they're actively destroying the business. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly what was happening. But instead of an Olive Garden gift card, it was like stock options. Yeah, it's like just failing to see the real priorities. Well, and it's hilarious because it's like stock options for a company that's whose stock price is very quickly tanking. Yeah, it's like what are you really after? Like why like what is your incentive to sabotage other departments? So can Atari make it? Synapses Ken Grant thinks so. Quote, "We're rather optimistic, more so than we have been in more than a year." Payne Weber's Lee Lee Isger estimates that Warner could manage to break even instead of reporting a loss, which, if true, could be the start of a dramatic turnaround. Quote, The worst is certainly over for Atari, said Isger. I don't know how good the future will be, and if Atari hasn't established a beachhead by 1985, it doesn't have a chance. Hmm. Following this, um, CEO Ray Morgan did manage to get Atari to break even on Q4 of, uh, on Q4 of 1984. But by, uh, by early 1985, the company had crashed and was split off into three pieces to be sold off. Oh, the coin-op division became Atari Games. The consumer division was sold to, da to Jack Tamriel, who folded it into his Tamriel Technology Limited, uh, which was then renamed the Atari Corporation. And the budding uh, Atariel division was then sold to Mitsubishi Electric. And wow. that is where we're going to leave off the first part of this story. Because while all of this was happening, Nolan Bushnell was involved in something else. Because next, on this next episode, we're going to talk about part two of this ballad of Nolan Bushnell. Because during all of this, he was involved in something called Chuck E. Cheese. Holy shit. Next time on Desperate Acts of Capitalism. Join us then for more fun. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter at D-A-O-C-Cast, Instagram at Desperate Acts of Capitalism, and Tumblr at DesperateActsOfCapitalism.tumblr.com. And remember, next week's episode is up right this moment on our Patreon. Join us there for bonus content, including an entire second podcast, Business Desserts, where Evan and I talk about current business news and whatever we feel like talking about that week. And thank you so much for listening. We love you. Big things are coming. <laughs>